Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Muna Abdi, and in this episode I'm joined by Evie Muir, a domestic abuse specialist, intersectional feminist, racial justice activist, and freelance journalist based in Sheffield. Evie has worked in domestic abuse and sexual violence sector for over eight years, and her work specializes in the intersectional, racial, and gendered experiences of abuse, trauma, and help seeking. It's really important at the start of this episode to outline that there is a content warning. There are mentions of intimate violence, in this episode that some listeners may find disturbing. So my name's Evie Muir um, and I am a Sheffield-based domestic abuse specialist. Um, I specialise in BAMA and I'm going to say that in inverted commas, but that is how the sector still calls us, BAMA and LGBT experiences of domestic abuse. Um, and I've supported survivors from black and minoritized ethnic communities for upwards of eight years now, and currently work in the sector, working with mainstream organizations to support their anti-racism work and LGBT inclusion work. I'm also a freelance journalist on the side and really got into that sector as a way of communicating the work being done um, in the domestic abuse field, but also a way of platforming survivors' voices who largely aren't platformed um, in mainstream media. And on the side, I also run a walking club for people of colour called Peaks of Colour um, and we're based in the Peak District and anyone is welcome. That's a little bit about me. Wonderful, thank you Evie and, and this conversation has been a long time coming because I think we talk about violence in, in lots of different forms and oppression is the root cause of violence and so it's really important for us if we are having a conversation about anti-racism work, anti-oppressive work, that we are acknowledging the different forms of violence that there are and the, the form of violence that is the most prevalent in our society is the, 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 the intimate violence that we're going to be exploring today. So I just want us to start off by just having a conversation about what we mean when we're talking about intimate violence. What is intimate violence and why is it important to look at anti-racism um, when we're looking at intimate violence? I've got the kind of official definition of intimate violence here for context because then we kind of start to unpick it and in terms of intimate partner violence or domestic abuse um, it's defined as an incident or pattern of incidences of controlling, coercive, threatening, degrading and violent behaviour including sexual violence. So often we are led to believe and have been conditioned to believe that um, intimate violence or domestic abuse is a physical act that is visible, so you'll see bruises or um, marks or scars or bleeding. And that kind of story still pervades. And that's something that we can easily get misled to believe is violence. Actually, now our understanding is that it forms a pattern of abuse. And often the physical violence um, is just one of many forms of abuse that is happening. And the physical violence may happen in isolation or in 
very rare circumstances as a form of punishment, perhaps, um, and not as an intrinsic part of the abuse, but that kind of control and that undermining and that gaslighting and um, the financial control is day to day. And that is what lays the foundation um, for physical and sexual violence to then flourish, essentially. So that is now kind of the understanding of what what intimate violence looks like and can look like, but largely that image and that and that um, narrative is whitewashed and it is based on this public story where something I like to do in my, when I'm delivering training on this is straight from the bat I, I ask everyone in the room to think of a domestic abuse survivor. I just give them a split second to do so and then I ask them what that survivor looked like. And nine times out of 10, the answers will be a white, female, cisgender, heterosexual survivor who's probably powering um, or bruised or has some physical injury. And that is because this public story of abuse is so powerful, it's been regurgitated over time it's been fed into us through domestic abuse campaigns. It's been fed into us through um, depictions of abuse we see on the TV. And that automatically brings an image of an ideal victim, a perfect victim to our mind. And that perfect victim is a white cisgender heterosexual woman who's experienced um, physical violence. Mm -hmm. And that is a real issue. This is a product of, of feminism. And, you know, it's like a byproduct of it. And obviously, feminism has been great in bringing our understanding of domestic abuse to the public sphere when it used to be considered a private problem. Mm -hmm. It's been fantastic in that. But it's almost been an unintended consequence of, of this, this feminist work that, as a result, our perception of domestic abuse is through a white lens, through a heteronormative and cisnormative lens, and as a result, it means that people's experiences of abuse that aren't um, heteronormative, cisnormative and white facing don't fit this model. And we don't know what to do when people's experiences don't fit this model. And that is when you will see abusers manipulate the fact that their victim doesn't fit this model. And it's how you'll see the services designed to support us not respond correctly because we don't fit this model we're presenting to them as someone who who is brown black our bruises aren't as visible as a result uh, the the emotional abuse we experience is cultural we have additional immigration needs and our sexual abuse is down to fetishization it's all these different intersections in the ways we experience abuse and it's not being talked about enough it's it also makes it difficult for other survivors to recognise the abuse that we're experiencing. Because if we've only been shown this image of abuse that is white and cisgender and heteronormative, how on earth are we going to recognise the abuse in ourselves to even um, be able to validate ourselves to, to look for support in, in the first place? So it's all these kind of mm -hmm. cycles that present the issue and underpinning it is is racism, homophobia, transphobia at, at its core. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head in saying that these experiences are intersectional experiences and what the 
the dominant or majoritarian narrative around domestic violence and domestic abuse does is that it denies the fact that these are a constellation of oppressions rather than a single form of oppression. And that dynamic and that relationship with power that is ultimately tied to white supremacy in its in its framing and in the structures around it. So when we think about the structures around the consequences of domestic violence and and the way in which that's designed, as well as the structures around support. And and both of those being equally as exclusionary um, in their spaces. One of the things I really wanted to to touch upon was the the idea that the understanding that violence is a learned behaviour, that it's something that is you're conditioned to because of the environment in which you're in. And we know that the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Health Disorders, has defined racism as being one of the causes of post-traumatic stress disorders, of PTSD. When we think about somebody who may be experiencing post-traumatic stress from the systems and the structures that they're a part of because of that ongoing systemic racism, what does that mean in terms of the type of behaviour that may be learned as a result, that may be enacted as a result? Because I think sometimes when we think about domestic violence and domestic abuse, we think about it as happening only in that private sphere. It happens within the home, and that's the starting point and the end point of the violence. And it's really important for us when we're looking at things through an an anti-oppressive lens, which is ultimately an anti-violence lens as well, to understand that link between the public and the private. What has been the activities and the things that have been happening within the the public sector that has made its way into into the, the public life, that has made its way into the private lives of individuals, because that learned behavior is brought into homes, it's brought into communities, and it's really important for us to talk about what some of that learned behavior is that comes as a result of trauma. And it's really interesting because I think when we think of it in that lens and we think of ourselves as kind of socio-political beings and everything we're doing, abusers in particular, is almost motivated by that socio-political foundation so how I see it is that abusers are expert manipulators in whichever realm you want them to step into or whichever realm they step into and what we see is that abusers can manipulate the systems of oppression to enhance and embed the abuse that they're perpetrating onto a survivor so for example they will so what we say is they use the same tools of power and control as other abusers as abusers in white relationships as abusers in heteronormative relationships but abusers who are in relationships with a person of color or um, in an lgbt relationship they will then use those um, social tools of oppression as a tool of abuse as well because Mm -hmm. they know they can because that's what those tools of oppression exist for so it may be that a person is experiencing physical violence and the physical violence is the same in the act in a a white relationship as it is in a black relationship the Mm -hmm. act may be the exact same but the outcome is different because the abuser knows that they can hit or punch the survivor and know that the bruises will be less visible. And that has been something that's been communicated to myself as a survivor. I know for a fact that I'm not the only one, that this is something that 
is actively in an abuser's mind as hurting us mm. um, and they will communicate that and say well you won't mark the same and then they know that those systems that exist will facilitate their ability to manipulate those oppressions so they'll mm. know that we were to go to the police if we were to go to the gp with these barely visible bruises that those institutions that are racist won't see us as victims so they can manipulate that they have the in terms of learned behavior in their sexual violence context i think it's really important to talk about things like fetishization of black women and of ethnic minority women because because that is alert behavior that is so ingrained that it almost can be argued that it directs our sexual preferences. So it's mm. it's oppression that is so normalized that people are able to say, oh, well, I only fancy black girls and that's okay. Mm. And that's deemed to be okay. But that fetishization of only fancying black girls then positions this power imbalance where we as black girls who may have never felt desired growing up in school may have never had a boyfriend in primary school um may have never been fancied may have had our hair pulled and like and all the all our natural features have been positioned as something that that is unattractive then we find these partners who actually find them attractive but through a fetishization lens yeah and we're meant to be grateful of that we're meant to we're conditioned to believe that that is what love is and attraction is this kind of mm. warped warped perception of hypersexuality that we're meant to be up for sex all the time because we're black that um we're meant to be up for um, alternative kinds of sex because of our ethnicity and this is through patterns of fetishization that is that have come down in history and this is embedded into abusers mindsets so they will they will tell you it's, it's a form of love bombing they'll say oh I only fancy black girls or I only fancy um Asian girls and you are the only person I see mm. and they will bomb you with this love and then manipulate it and turn it into a way of sexually oppressing you and mm. um, making you feel obliged to do things that you don't want to do, making you feel obliged to have sex when you don't want it and seeing you in this lens that ultimately is non-human, you're a sexualized being. And how that translates in everyday sexual interactions, you know, even kind of online dating and mm. the ridiculousness that we experience online you know, it's kind of streams of messages similar to um, what we'd experience in relationships where it's like, I only fancy black girls or they ask us to twerk or something, something mm. really fetishized and sexualized. This is where we see these systems of oppression become normalized in a relationship setting. And oh, if oh. we were to then go to the police and say, my boyfriend is um, saying he, only, he really fancies me as a black person how how are we going to explain that that's abuse yeah and that really echoes to me the the almost and I don't want to compare the two because they're not comparative but they are interlinked the language and the abusive behavior that is present within our workplaces mm-hmm. and within all of the systems and structures that we work within that idea of gaslighting somebody that idea of uh, honing in on particular aspects of their identity and saying and this is a this is a strength or this is a beauty in you 
that we're, we're mm-hmm. going to focus in on and not realizing that that is a fetishization of, of a person's identity. Mm-hmm. And particularly for black women, experiencing that in the workplace where they are told that they are valued and recognized mm-hmm. in a space, but the reality is they are being manipulated within that context. They are being manipulated in order for those individuals to maintain control within that space. So again, the two are not the Normalized same experiences, but it is that idea of normalizing that manipulative behavior and that control. But it also is about, we, we often talk about people being unaware of the things that they're doing and the language of unconscious bias, et cetera. But one of the things that you really honed in on, which I think is so important to highlight, is that you said the abusers are acutely aware uh-huh. of the way that systems and structures work and they know how to behave in a way they know how to navigate their way through that system so that they can evade the consequences that they can avoid those consequences and I think that's something that we really need to be talking about is when we're talking about abuse not going by the idea that somebody is starting from a place of ignorance but that it, it could actually be starting from a place of acute awareness and knowing how to manipulate those systems so that there isn't a consequence for their actions absolutely I mean um particularly when the, the best example of this is when we look at um, how immigration status is used as use. It is the most perfect example because here you have a right-wing rhetoric that is anti-immigration, it forces it down on net in every sphere and abusers see this, they recognise this and then they go, okay, so I can abuse my partner who has insecure immigration status because they've got nowhere to go because if they go to the police, they may be reported to the Home Office. They know this. So then they, then they use that kind of structural vulnerability um, and will verbally, quite consciously, communicate that to the, to the victim. So I've supported survivors who have come in with the most kind of absurd, misleading information. Mm-hmm. It's just misinformation. They've, they've been fed this by their partner who have said... If you go to the police, you'll get deported. But with these, with these really tangled and twisted stories of how that's going to happen, because they know that there's that fear already embedded yeah. in migrant communities, and they know they can manipulate that fear. So I've seen, again, seen um, abusers say, "You can't go to the police because you'll get deported." And even if that hasn't been verbally said there's an underlying belief that that might happen or the fear and the risk that that might happen. We've seen abusers physically take people's passports away from them and say in England, and, and often this is, this is kind of how it works, this lack of um, awareness of our own personal rights mm-hmm. um, will be manipulated. So they, it's an abuser will say, oh, the laws are different in England, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Or um, I know I supported someone who said only men can report to the police so you can't report this abuse please mm-hmm. so it's all embedded in these systems of power so when you have an anti-immigration sector and that's what it is isn't it it's not an immigration sector it's an anti-immigration sector mm-hmm. that is built on uh, power and control and manipulation and oppression and you have an abuser who wants to manipulate and oppress the tools are at their disposal you don't have to look far be able to pick and choose essentially how you want to how you want to enact pain on someone the the way our society is built up Mm. it essentially hands 
abusers these tools on a plate and these abusers are sat there waiting for their rare opportunity they are I think something that is really misleading is a view of perpetrators to be passive and to be um, uninformed and it, yeah it almost gives a view like the abuse was accidental and they didn't know mm. better abusers know abusers know exactly what they're doing and I don't think I've ever experienced a case or supported a case where that hasn't been true where I've supported someone for example where um the partner fled the 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 victim fled the relationship um and the abuser quite quickly manipulated social services systems that were in place to twist the narrative to say that she was um, abusing the children. So this very flimsy system we've got in place to support a domestic abuse victim mm. is so easily washed away because the social services systems and the child support systems are so much stronger. They're not great in any sense of the imagination, but they are structurally more strong than the domestic abuse systems. So for yeah. months, mean months, this entire case got derailed where the focus had to become directed on the victim to ensure that she wasn't a risk to the children which she mm. wasn't she hadn't laid a finger on them she hadn't done anything wrong the children were saying that, they, that she'd never done anything wrong but the investigation had to happen which meant that the investigation into the perpetrator had mm. to be paused and that was instant that was within a matter of days of, of my survivor reporting her experiences of abuse yeah perpetrator quite quickly just looked around him to see which which uh, systems he could manipulate to further that abuse it meant that she, she was a teacher at the time her workplace had to be involved he had connections within schools as well so he he was able to manipulate the workplace he was able to manipulate social services he was mm. able to manipulate the courts in a way that just shifted that narrative and confused the narrative and mm. made him seem like a protective father as opposed to a father who was enacting a lot of cultural oppression onto his children. And that was mm. really difficult to communicate to the authorities as well. It was this whole tangled web, but that's how it becomes because essentially our experiences with abuse don't meet this model, this, this mm. ideal model. So even communicating our experiences as they're ongoing and as they're getting more complex and more more confusing it's a minefield for survivors to navigate it really is yeah absolutely and I think it's important to mention that when we're talking about the entry point into supportive spaces usually when the victim seeks support the abuse is entrenched it's it's deeply embedded it's been enacted over and over again over a long period of time so the the abuser at this point is doing the work doing it with confidence and recognizing how they can continue to do this and what we don't do uh, is we we often look at domestic abuse in isolation and what ends up happening is once the case is ended and hopefully it's been resolved when you look back retrospectively you see all of the services that that person has encountered and sought support from but because it wasn't using the language of domestic abuse it wasn't recognized as it and it's all of those dots that you end up joining up right at the very end rather than how do we start to make notice 
when somebody is asking questions about their housing, when they're when they're seeking support within their their child's school for whatever reason, all of those different spaces that you enter into and those support, those ideas of supportive spaces that you enter into. But until you get to the point where somebody may be fleeing from a perpetrator or may be hospitalized because of the, the violence that they've experienced, that shouldn't be the entry point into, into support. But what we do find often with domestic abuse is that is when services enter in. Yeah. And that question start to, to, to raise. And so we've we've missed maybe weeks, months, years of abuse get leading up to that point. What do you think are some of the, the deficits in the way in which these services are constructed that they just don't? It, I think it goes more than not communicating with one another. It's there isn't a recognition of how pervasive domestic abuse is in every aspect of our society. It's not an isolated thing to be explored. And it's within our education, it's within our housing, it's within our, our benefit system, it's in, it's in everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that kind of narrative that you've talked about is something is seen time and time again in domestic homicide reviews, where um, a person, a victim, will have been killed by their abuser. And only at that point, when they're doing the investigation into why it was allowed to get that far, will you see that there has been umpteen services involved um, or made contact with or referrals made over numerous years. Often it's over 10 years worth of kind of, of support services being involved with minimal action being taken. Um, and I know when I'm delivering training, we use one in particular. It's an example of a of a, a gay man in Brighton who was killed by his partner. Um, and in that, there's all these different intersections of age and sexuality and how um, services who engage with the, this couple had a lot of internalised homophobia, both institutionally and personally, which meant that they felt like it was even more of a private issue because it was mm. a queer relationship. And, you know, these, these services openly said that this victim disclosed he was being abused outright by his male partner. But because it was a male partner, they didn't feel like they could write it on their records. So that this entire it's a whole trajectory of a day of this person collapsing because of the physical abuse he'd experienced. And he collapsed in a shop the way that the shopkeeper called the ambulance and reported that to the ambulance, the disclosures made to the paramedics and how the paramedics didn't write down the domestic abuse on their records, even though it was disclosed, how when they were in A&E, the partner came and pretended to be the person's carer because there was an age difference and how the abuse wasn't noticed there. And then they um, were kept waiting so long and weren't prioritised as domestic abuse survivor in A&E so long that they went home. And subsequently mm -hmm. that evening, the, the victim was murdered. And that is a really, a really intense, but not uncommon case study and snapshot. It's a day, it's a day in the life of a victim whose life mm -hmm. ultimately ends. And in that one day, there had been three uh, key workers, first responders there, who missed the abuse or missed, they didn't miss the abuse. The abuse was verbally communicated to them and it wasn't recorded because of these these biases that exist on an institutional and individual level and that is when the abuse was communicated so imagine when the abuse isn't 
imagine when that public narrative of abuse is so strong that the the victim doesn't realize they're a victim themselves so they're presenting to services with mental health conditions physical health conditions as a as a result of abuse and it's not being picked up because they're not the ideal victim they don't look like the ideal victim their relationship um doesn't look like the ideal relationship for an for an abusive relationship mm. it's impossible really and I I know I was the same I presented to services multiple times whilst in abusive relationships with symptoms of an abusive relationship and it was never picked up on even when it was picked up on in kind of therapy sessions and counseling sessions it wasn't recognized as an actionable issue but something should be done about it that, that intervention should be put in place I was talking about it recently in regards to CBT um, as a supposed solution to trauma which it's not um, but that's a whole other rant but was talking about how my experiences of accessing CBT so and was so racist so trauma uninformed that it just kind of exemplifies everything we're talking about I ended up being sectioned uh, a couple of years ago many years ago after being gaslighted to the point of the mental breakdown mm. um, and I was still in that abusive relationship my abuser at the time even commented and was and said something along the lines of I love that I'm so powerful that I can get you institutionalized like it was it it was all a very conscious thing. But anyway, was um, was sectioned and was um, given diagnosed with BPD, which is now recognised as complex PTSD. So it's all interlinked these systems that are victim blaming. That looks at the victim and says you're the poorly one. Not something is happening to you that is traumatising, and we need to recognise. If I'd if they'd have given me a diagnosis of complex PTSD, maybe then they'd have looked and said, well, what on earth is traumatising her? And looked back mm. and seen that. But no, they looked at me as the problem, a problem that could then be manipulated by the abuser even more so, but was given this diagnosis and was like, right, so the solution for this is CBD, CBT, sorry, and had these ridiculous sessions that are... It's, it's known to be pointless if you're still in an abusive relationship. You can't, you, can't, you can't do that work. But the work essentially is focusing on the individual. So looking yeah. at how the individual can change their behaviour and their mindset and their situation. The situation is abusive and it's, it's so victim-blamey. So, and, and in the end, and they referred me to, um, to DBT sessions, which were group sessions where other survivors were saying their experiences deeply triggering went to one session couldn't go back and at that point they said we think your case is too severe for us we recommend you um self-refer to um a different service with no mm. with no um suggestions of what those services might look like I was living in Doncaster at the time and the kind of scope of services that exist that are kind of trauma specialist services a few and far between so it's kind of like right off you go go fix yourself go find something for yourself while still in an abusive relationship so obviously what happened I stayed in that abusive relationship for an extra two years and had no capacity to even pick up a phone and start googling to try and find services that existed never mm. mind filling a referral form 
And this is why these systems, it's all interlinked. It's beyond the police. It's beyond the domestic abuse sector. It's the GP that we go to when we've got aches and pains um, who dismisses our mental health. Or I remember when I was much younger in my first abusive relationship, the GP said, oh, well, everyone in your at, at your age argues with their partner. And it wasn't an argument. It was my partner completely verbally abusing me and emotionally mm. abusing me. And, and the impact of trying to go to a service for help in any form, whether or not you recognise that the reasons you're trying to access that service is due to abuse or not, mm-hmm. um, it might be due to a symptom of abuse, but the amount of self-love and self-awareness and um, self-care it takes to, to step foot in a service is huge. Yeah. And then to be dismissed and gaslighted and sent on your way mm. within minutes within a 10 minute GP appointment or whatever that is in and of itself enough for you to never step foot in a service ever again for you to lose trust with all services and we know that a dismissive GP appointment 10 minute GP appointment is probably on the lower end of the oppression scale compared to maybe going to the police and experiencing institutional racism from the police there is a huge kind of up and down scale of the ways we experience oppression when we access support and often one survivor will have experienced multiple forms of uh, racial oppression from multiple forms of services alongside the oppression they're experiencing from their partner it's a minefield that is that is impossible to navigate yeah absolutely and I think one of the things that everything you said is just so extremely powerful but one of the things I just want to hone in on is how not not only is the abuser aware of how they can navigate the system because these ideas are so deeply entrenched and their ideas around power their ideas around white supremacy around um, patriarchy and, and what somebody is able to do and not able to do those ideas are also um, in the awareness of the victim Mm-hmm. in knowing which services that they can go to or not go to and not feel seen or heard, etc. And when we think about this within the context of race in particular, we know that there is a really strong understanding that Black women are not believed. Mm-hmm. Their experiences of pain, their experiences of abuse are not believed. And this is historical. We know this through the legacies of colonialism, the legacies of slavery, where intimate violence was used as a tool of oppression where, where rape and, and multiple other forms of intimate violence were used. And those ideas around the systems and structures that enabled it then are the same systems and structures that enable it now. And so there's a really strong understanding amongst women of color that if you are a victim of domestic abuse, the threshold to being seen and to being heard for you is much higher than somebody who isn't a person of color. And on the other side, you have the acute awareness from men who are racialized as black, that the consequences are, are much greater. And so there's the idea of, even when you're looking at this through a racialized lens, that awareness of power, the awareness of how systems are, are ultimately controlling who is and isn't able to seek support in these situations. So if you're talking about, sort of, for example, uh, a man who is a victim of, of domestic um, violence and is uh, uh, somebody who's racialized as black, how high is that threshold to being seen, to being heard, to being understood, to being supported? 
um, if you're if you're a black woman, if you're a member of the LGBTQ community, so on and so forth. We we always talk about entering into spaces of support, but we don't talk about how those spaces of support can be designed to exclude. And I know that you work within the, the the charity sector, and we have a conversation about the reality of doing this work through an intersectional and through an anti-racist lens within a sector where there is that really strong narrative around what abuse is that shapes not just the, 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 the practice within that sector as well, but the wider conversations that happen outside of it. So the reality, I'm trying to be diplomatic, but I don't think I can. The reality is that working within the sector and anyone who is not white, white cisgender and heterosexual, um, the sector in is in and of itself abusive and I don't think anyone wants to hear that, accept that, believe it or do anything about it but it is for many reasons and I think for context when I talk about the sector I'm talking about the domestic abuse and sexual violence services at the core and the institutions that they interact with, that the support interacts with. Um, so police, mental health institutions, counselling, therapies, um, social services, housing, immigration services, a lot. Um, and I think that is part of the problem that we don't look at the domestic abuse sector as this much wider circle of institutions. We look at it often as these great amazing buildings which house great amazing workers um, who are doing frontline work for barely any money um, and who are saving lives and that in and of itself is a truth that is happening however those people who are saving lives who are getting paid I've seen people on full-time salaries of 16 grand at the lowest level frontline work those people doing that work are simply cogs in a wheel of something much bigger much more oppressive they are um very powerless um have very little um work They're, they often step into and i say they i'm one of them we step into this sector um informed educated passionate I stepped into it with a master's degree in gender um, and oppression. And quite quickly, this passion gets manipulated and abused and twisted in and of itself. So the workers, and um, especially if you're a worker of colour or an LGBT worker doing domestic abuse support, we are then abused ourselves in these roles. Now going to the reality of that in a bit more detail but us as workers we are the bottom of the ladder and there are these huge structures above us that we are it feels we are very powerless to do much about with we are there's a lot of us who are chipping away at it and there's some great work being done that is chipping away at it but ultimately it feels like if I'm imagining it in my head, there's a tiny person at the bottom with these big structures at the top, and that is very much how it feels, um, this huge weight. That says that 
realistically, the only current route to support for a survivor is that they will maybe enter a domestic abuse service and the, the domestic abuse service will support them to access criminal justice through the police. So a black survivor walks into a domestic abuse service that may or may not have any staff that look like them, that may or may not have any anti-racism training, that may or may not have a belief system that matches ours. And we're told, right, your only option then is to call the police and we'll throw you into this sector now that is very widely known for being oppressive along racial lines. But that, that trajectory, there's very, there's very little room for manoeuvre there. If you want support and if you want justice, the only route of getting that is through the criminal justice system. I had to reason with my own personal circumstances long ago that I would never receive criminal justice um, in the most traditional sense because that system isn't designed to give people like me justice. It's not. It's not designed to give any survivors justice, let's be honest. I think the statistic is, is it 1.2% of rape cases reach conviction? So it doesn't matter really what your what your background is, what your culture is, what community you come from. The system isn't there to support you, but the people it will support at 1.2% are largely going to be white, heterosexual um, and cisgender. So someone who is queer and black is less likely to re receive that criminal justice. So you're entering a sector that statistically is only going to fail you. So you've been failed by your partner who's abused you. You're going to be failed by the systems designed to support you, but you're not. that's not communicated. You're, you, you have to be boosted with a semblance of hope. That's what our jobs are. Essentially, as frontline workers, our jobs are to give a semblance of hope that I no longer believe in. This is why I don't do frontline work anymore, because I don't believe in frontline support. I, I just can't. And... That is kind of the criminal justice side. Your second option, if you don't want to, or if you can't, for whatever reason, go down that route, is to work on yourself and to heal yourself. And the kind of traditional systematic ways of doing that is to go through therapy. And I can't reel off the top of my head the, the statistic, but we know how few, how few therapists across the country are not white it's minuscule the waiting list for those white feminist feminist therapy organizations are ridiculous and um, if you want free support mm. um, and it's likely that you will get um, a one-year waiting list for 16 hours so that's 16 sessions mm. to try and begin to undo upwards of what anything up to 10, 20 years of abuse sometimes that you've experienced over a lifetime and you have 16 hours to, to be fixed, to be cured essentially, or to be, mm -hmm. to, or to be able to function in an oppressive society at least. So at, at the bottom, on the ground, the systems in place to support us are mm. frankly pathetic and they're often behind the scenes, um, unbeknownst to survivors who, you know, are going in in crisis, more likely than not, behind the scenes, these systems are in bed with the most oppressive um, structures and policies, whereby, and there are ways of getting around it, 
with loopholes and things like this, but often the services aren't either aware or don't care about these loopholes. Essentially, if a survivor was to present themselves um, with insecure immigration status or who were violating their immigration status in whichever way, the domestic abuse sector is obliged to report them to prevent. They're obliged to report them to the Home Office. It's it's an the domestic abuse sector is a um, another tool of policing in in and of itself. We're in bed with the police in so many different ways, whether that's a route to support or a route of reporting and oppression. Um, and those things don't match up. How can you work for a, a domestic abuse organisation who deems itself to be specialist and famer, which is where I've worked previously, but has contracts with the Home Office mm. um, and has gets funding from the police and crimes commissioner? How, how, how do, does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. It's often, it's often um, some of the only routes that funding services can mm. access. And funding is a whole other part of this oppressive system. And that language of that language of criminality, that language of surveillance and, and monitoring is what we see in, in so many conversations around our white supremacy and the idea of violence being interconnected within our our structures in the public life that we have and then how that, that enters into the, the the private realm the the intimate violence mm-hmm. that we experience as well and, and those two things not being disconnected and also the understanding that when somebody is experiencing abuse whether they are in the midst of of the abusive relationship or whether they are seeking support and have managed to step outside of that abusive relationship they are still engaging in, in public life they are still going into social spaces. They are still entering into workplaces, etc. And the support that you mentioned, which is ridiculous, as you said, the idea that the, the, the problem lies within the individual. And if they seek some short-term therapeutic support, that's sufficient for them to be able to function and, yeah. and, and to be able to navigate their way through the social world, navigate their way through employment, etc. And really removing that idea of a trauma-informed approach to working which I think every single aspect of our social world should be trauma-informed because there's so many dimensions of trauma that we are all exposed to and that we take with us every single day but it's so interesting to hear that domestic violence a sector that is inherently about looking at abuse in, in, in its most explicit form more than any other sector that we have in society neglects the very idea of violence in I think, its own sector. I think that's, for me, that's such a profoundly important statement to acknowledge is that as a sector, its focus is on abuse and violence, but it's not understanding the interconnected nature of what violence is in terms of trauma. And I think the best example of this actually is, <clears throat> is um, when we look at trans um, survivors' experiences of abuse and of navigating services and accessing support, because that is where this trauma-informed lens gets completely pushed to the side within many, and I would go as far to, as to say the majority of services. And I mean, fundamentally, a, a service can't be trauma-informed when it's also racist and transphobic. It, it, 
Mm-hmm. It makes no sense. That sentence makes no sense. You can't say I'm going to exclude trans women from a women's service and still profess to be trauma-informed because what on earth? But that is something that, that is something that is getting vilified in the press, media. It is fundamentally right-wing fascism in the sector, in the sector that is being validated through academic language through really unethical um, and kind of, yeah, immoral research reports Mm. that are are there, are being used to support these arguments that are fundamentally human rights violations, full stop. So what we're seeing is almost a spectrum of transphobia within the Mm. domestic abuse sector. There is genuine ignorance and and a genuine ignorance that when with a little bit of information sparks a commitment to learn and unlearn and become trans inclusive Mm. and the role that I'm doing currently exists to support those organizations that have recognized the journey they need to go on for LGBT inclusion and trans inclusion in particular and often those services themselves who are doing that work and doing probably you know the basic steps at this point become under attack by the services that refuse to outwardly refuse to and proudly and unapologetically refuse to go on that journey they will never go on that journey and I think going back to this public story it's all embedded in the foundations of domestic abuse awareness that those founders who who embedded a feminist theory into our understanding of domestic abuse and brought the issue into the public sphere did so along white cisgender heterosexual lenses and that that narrative has been so embedded that we see the service provisions that exist as being largely women's services and we know that women aren't the only people to experience abuse but that narrative still exists. And that narrative then gets manipulated by the services that are designed to support, by the women in those services designed to support, say that we're a women's service and we don't believe that this person is a woman fundamentally, so therefore they can't access this service. So there is that entire trauma-informed lens goes because they see a trans survivor as a threat, as a potential threat, Based on no real evidence, and this is this is the reality, there is no real evidence. Any stories we see in the media is fear-mongering. It's, you know, an exception to the rule, essentially. But fundamentally, what, what these services are saying is we won't accept trans women into our service. And it goes beyond that because it means that there's nowhere else for these survivors to go. LGBT domestic abuse services nationwide are minuscule so it's a postcode lottery if you're lgbt if you're trans where you can access support it's very similar for um for survivors of color as well yeah i think essentially yeah i mean essentially tools that we see used by abusers we see used by the the practitioners in these services 
Um, Absolutely. And you often so, hear you often hear organisations and, and people that work in a number of different structures say, "But well, we can't be all things to all people. We can't. We can't do this. We can't." And and setting deliberate limitations on what they can and can't do. And the reality is, if you're doing any anti-violence work, you can't fight against one form of violence if you're not fighting against all forms of violence and you can't um, do that when you're perpetrating violence as well because absolutely. that is what we see that that the tools used by abusers are then used by the services um so um i created a, a resource recently for the organization i work for on transphobic hate crime in domestic abuse and sexual violence cases because that essentially is what it is you we will see practitioners sometimes CEOs of domestic abuse organisations perpetrate this campaign of hate against trans survivors, particularly trans survivors who work within the sector. And they will use tools like online abuse, identity abuse, um, to to really target that person and target them with the same amount of um, energy an abuser targets a victim in an intimate partner relationship. Mm. It's that committedness. They will stop at nothing. We've had held events um, that platform trans survivors that have been infiltrated by practitioners in the sector under false names, under fake email accounts to, to attend, record, abuse, go on Twitter, campaigns of hate, um, troll people, get articles in the Times about about these it goes beyond it, it really does go beyond um what may seem like a simple turning away of a survivor at the door of the service this oh sorry we can't support you and that is loaded in of itself it's not that it's it's all these underlying things that are happening the ways that these transphobic practitioners are then um trying to campaign and change policy it's the way that, I mean, I've had my workplace contacted by a CEO of another organization saying that, did you know that your um, worker has tweeted saying something along the, along the lines of trans allyship, essentially. Mm-hmm. I'm not a trans person, I'm a cisgender person who's a trans ally, and my workplace was contacted by a CEO of another domestic abuse organisation. And the organisation I work for is an LGBT organisation. They were like, well, brilliant, good. I'm glad that one of our employees are are doing that work outside on their own time, brilliant. But not everyone is going to have that supportive environment. Not everyone is going to understand the nuances um, of kind of what side to be on because because, um, I recognise that a lot of people find this um, non-debate confusing um, mm. but not everyone not everyone is going to have that support and that is I think what, uh, person never meant never mind if you're trans yeah and I think and, one of the re- one of the reasons why these conversations are unnecessarily tense is because that that dominant narrative is so strong that anything that sits outside of it is either seen as too difficult to engage with or too obscure we just don't understand it or it's unnecessary and you'll hear all three of those arguments where people are just like it's it's too difficult I don't want to talk about it or they'll say I don't understand enough about it so therefore I'm going to just remain willfully ignorant yeah it's not my problem if I don't understand it or other people that are completely 
they, they don't see it as necessary at all because they'll say this is the way that it and you'll hear that language of this is the way that it's always been this is the way that we're going to continue to to shape it this has been a, a, a women's only service this has been and the fact that womanhood without even being named is tied to white womanhood and we and there's a lot of things around the the domestic violence sector that is unnamed but is accepted and it's taken for granted and one of the work one of the things that we do around anti-racism work is start to unpack and name all of those taken for granted things of don't just assume that what you're doing is the, is the correct way to do it ask the question of who the service is for what you're striving to achieve and if this if the system doesn't work for what you're hoping to achieve change the system and what I think with the resistance that we're seeing in a lot of different forms around anti-racism work and anti-oppressive work more broadly is that there is a fear, but there's also an unwillingness to do the work because this requires hard work. It requires asking new questions. It requires developing new practices. And that's not going to change overnight, but it has to start off with that willingness and, and with that commitment to do it. And this the, is resistance, the resistance that we see around it, I think sometimes, and I'm going to say something that I, I very often say in our training sessions is, sometimes we have to see the resistance around this as a distraction mm-hmm. from the work. Because sometimes people will be keyboard warriors on Twitter, they'll be phoning organisations, they'll be commenting in, in different spaces, etc., to distract away from the work that, that, that needs to happen. And I mean, I will say, and this is where I get only slightly sympathetic or, you know, generous with with this, um, is that I can just attest to how difficult it is to do this work Mm. when you're cogging the wheel on the ground. Because essentially, and, you know, it could arguably, I wonder how worthwhile doing it from the bottom up is because these systems are so large and so oppressive. Um, And these are things that I question probably daily. I'm burnt out daily. Um, And this is the reality that the workers, the frontline workers at the bottom who are passionate, well-meaning, committed, um, who are doing these trainings, who who are there doing the trainings while their CEO isn't, who want to be able to do that work, then leave those training sessions, you know, go back to the office, to a pile of paperwork, to um, a referral waiting list that is humongous, to survivors who are in crisis, who then project their secondary trauma onto us, Mm -hmm. and we are exhausted and we are burnt out. And this this isn't an issue with, I mean, there's, there's an element of there are some practitioners certainly that do not want to do that work. And largely it's those practitioners who are at the top who are preventing that work happening on the ground. I'd say there's a, a lot more committedness that isn't being allowed to flourish because we are burnt out. We have worked in services that have quite literally said, if you want counselling as staff for the secondary trauma you've experienced, in this job, in this very underpaid job, we'll have to take that funding out of the client's pot. Mm. So it's that kind of gaslighting that happens internally as well. 
that means that of course your passionate workforce that really cares about their, their clients that work themselves to the bone and don't take annual leave because and don't leave the job because they're they you've conditioned them if you leave they're letting the service users down of course we're not going to turn around and say okay yes give us therapy at the expense of the people we're supporting we know we also that that system wouldn't work because then you've got under supported service users and we're going to have to pick up the pieces so it's a, a lose-lose situation either way mm. we are genuinely being told and given those ultimatums that either we get support or the service users get support so we sacrifice ourselves we then see a high staff turnover in services who aren't paying their staff enough for the for the work we're doing low pay low reward high burnout and then you're having systems where funding is so short that you're funding the workers like myself who do the development work who are working with mainstream organizations to make them anti-racist and lgbt inclusive they're on one year piecemeal contracts but then we'll get made redundant year on year out mm. and maybe we'll see a little bit of change in that year but not enough and maybe we'll see a little bit of change of the staff within a team of staff who are burnt out and will leave within the next year and then you've got the staff turnover yeah. so it's this huge this is where funding becomes so integral to it because you've got you've you've got a system on the ground that doesn't work burnt out staff high staff turnover piecemeal funding um it's impossible for this work to be embedded even when it mm. is being done excellently but then you've also got these really large organizations getting the lion's share of the funding and doing so in a really manipulative way so we've seen how for example lgbt funding and i know this is the same with with funding specifically for bme communities as well those funding parts are few and far between and there's not much in them we'll see mainstream organizations going for those fundings saying they're going to do lgbt work or bme work even though they're not equipped to and they don't have that kind of um theology behind them to do so or that activism behind them to do so they'll get that funding take it away from grassroots communities who would do that work better mm. um and then don't do that work essentially and that is what is happening so these are the kind of additional tools of abuse being used by yeah. practitioners in a structural institutional way and these are the conversations that we're having with funders as well is it urging them to really look at who they're funding and asking the questions of rather than funding organizations that are claiming to do work around these issues look for organizations who are in those communities who are grassroots who are front-facing and who are leading from lived experience and use that as your basis of, of, of your initial funding I think sometimes there's a false perception of security for funders when they know that there is an, a, a seemingly established organization or a big organization that is asking for the funding because they know that they'll do all of the formalities of evaluations, they'll have their name attached to the funding, et cetera. There's a lot of intricate decision-making that happens behind the walls that we're not aware of, but ultimately it takes money away from communities and it takes money away from Great those ones. with lived experience who can do this work well Exactly as you said. So I think there's a huge amount of responsibility that we need to place on funders to consider that as well. Evie, I can talk to you all day, but just to finish off, because I know that this will be really important for those who are front facing and doing this work like you are. 
what do you do to take care of yourself in the midst of everything that you're experiencing? I know that self-care is a, is a catchphrase at the moment that people are using in a lot of different spaces, but what do you do to take care of your psychological well-being, your physical well-being in the midst of the, the, the work that you're doing? What advice would you give to those who are also doing this front-facing work um, with that acute awareness of what those structural limitations are? Um, so fundamentally, and um, it's what I try to encourage with everyone who I meet who works in the sector, take the damn sick leave. Dear Lord, take your sick leave. Take it when you need it. Take it when you feel like you might need it soon. That is what I've learned fundamentally is when you can feel those kind of niggles and the, the balance becoming unsettled, take the sick leave then to prevent yourself from reaching burnout. I mean, it's it's... Yeah, it's hard to do. And I'm in a, currently I'm in a state of burnout. So, you know, sometimes I don't take my own advice, but that is one that I really do try to do. If you're a survivor working in the sector, I would recommend getting, finding therapy that is safe for you and, and kind of going on that journey of finding therapy that's safe for you. Because quite truly, I think I talk about the, trauma of the sector more than I talk about the trauma of the abuse in and I have done for years that is, that is just the reality so never underestimate the need for support in in that respect I would say find the communities within this community that are doing affirming validating work around racial justice and around gender justice because Often we're working in organisations that aren't doing that, that are repressing us whilst we're trying to liberate others. And it's awful. So there's some amazing spaces. Um, Sister Space, which is a African-Caribbean organisation based in London. They are doing amazing campaigning work and amazing resistance work. Um, and they are so open to being reached out to, to, to offer support for people who need it. Um, IMCON as well um, and related organisations, they are currently running an anti-racism working group and they've created an anti-racism charter within the violence against women and girls sector. And that is probably one of the safest spaces I've ever been in where anti-racism, black feminism is so embedded into that worldview and the outlook on how we deliver support and how we um, protect ourselves as survivors. I'd stay up to date with other work that's happening. So, for example, Solace Women's Aid called out racism in their organisation um, with an open letter to their CEOs um, mm. as an example of how we can do this work and protect ourselves. I think it's really good to be looking at, at how others are doing it and kind of surround yourself by, whether that's on social media or in real life, kind of change makers that look like us, that have the same values as us, because that is where that validation comes from when you have those really low days and you're thinking, what is the point? Why am I doing this? You need people that look like you, that feel like you, that think like you to tell you that you're not the only one who's kind of in this bubble. And then just on a personal note, for me, it's being out in nature that does it for me. It's why I created Peaks of Colour. That's a shameless self-plug, but mm. it, it is it, it has been probably the single most impactful cure for my own trauma and my own mental health being out in nature um, mm. and there are so many barriers for us as people of colour women of colour in particular 
in accessing those mental health benefits of nature, hence why the group was created to hopefully remove some of those barriers. But if even if nature isn't your thing, to find your thing, I think is really important. Absolutely. Evie, thank you so much for sparing the time to, to speak no with me. All of those are such really important points for us to reflect on. Um, and I'm sure everybody who's listening is going to take away a lot from everything that you've shared. So thank you again so much and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. I want to thank Evie for her open and honest reflection, both professionally and personally, in this episode. It's really clear from some of the points mentioned in this episode that when we're talking about anti-oppressive work, this work is ultimately anti-violence work. It's based on the understanding that in order to end one form of violence, we must be working to end all forms of violence. It's impossible to separate anti-oppressive and anti-racist work from that of anti-violence work. This episode also highlights the importance of understanding the cycle of violence and the structural nature of violence and how those experiences that we see in public life filter its way and make its way into some of the dynamics within our personal and intimate lives as well. Violence is learned behavior. It's really important to not see violence as the starting point and at the end point of our conversation. In order to tackle the root causes of these issues, we really have to work in a place where we are not separating the individual from the systemic and the systemic from the individual. This is not about intention. It's about impact. We need to start from a place of impact and work our way from there. Anti-racism work and anti-oppressive work is ultimately preventative. The sooner we're able to have these conversations, the sooner we're able to tackle the failures in the systems and structures that we work within, the sooner we're able to consider all people in the spaces that we hold, the more we'll be able to tackle those underlying dynamics that underpin all of the oppressive structures that we are trying to tackle. Anti-racism work and anti-oppressive work is preventative work.